Welcome to the watermarkoc.church podcast. Thank you for listening. Uh, epistle written by the Apostle Paul in the, in the first century to a church that he had founded. And it's just, it's kind of a bedrock book if you want to understand what Christianity is really about. Maybe you're here exploring Christianity. Maybe you're a new Christian. Maybe you don't understand some of the nuances and the deep truths of Christianity. The book of Ephesians is just a great book. And um, it just brings up so many great truths about our faith. And, and th- there are these blessings that Paul talks about that God has given us. I mean, God loves us so much. He's this good father. We sing this song about him. You're a good, good father. And he loves us so much that he has given us every spiritual blessing that he has. That, that, that he wants to extend to us as the children that he has adopted. You know, through his son Jesus. And Paul coins a Christian term, you know, that's in the New Testament, that's unique to him. It's called in Christ. And he uses it 27 times in the book of Ephesians. It's this powerful idea that encapsulates the truth and the good news of the gospel. 27 times he says, we have all these blessings that are in Christ because we're in Christ and it's this great truth is that when we place our faith in Jesus, that we believe the truth that he is God in the flesh and that he came to bring us into relationship so that we might know the Father's love. And so he died on the cross to reconcile us, to bring us into relationship with God the Father. And so that we might know every spiritual blessing, that we might know forgiveness and freeness and eternal life right now, right here. And Paul unpacks these incredible blessings. The newness that we get because of the gospel and the good news that we believe by faith. We're placed in the death of Christ and we're placed into the resurrection of Christ. We're identified with Christ. It's as though when Jesus died, he died, we died in his, with him. We're reunited with him in his death. And so his death is transferred to us and we have forgiveness and freedom because he died in our place for our sins and our brokenness and our shame and then when he rose from the dead we rose with him too and he's given us this new life this new identity this new purpose this new family that we call the church people that we're going to be with forever this is the reality of the gospel and so we've been unpacking these blessings and it's awesome and if you read the blessings you go wow god is so good But lest we think that it's all just about blessing, the Apostle Paul closes up his book in chapter 6 with a little bit of reality, right? I mean, maybe you've had that experience where you go to church, you hear a good sermon, and you sort of drive out of the parking lot, and all of a sudden, you hit traffic, and you're in a traffic jam. All of a sudden, your kids go berserk in the car, and there's a huge fight. All of a sudden, you know, you say something about your sermon and you say it wrong to your wife and she's mad at you because she thinks you're judging her. I've never done that before. Never. And so all of a sudden, the wheels come off. What's going on? What's happening? And that's the reality of the fact that even though we have these incredible blessings, these incredible opportunities, these new things, these new opportunities are not without challenges. 
And sometimes we don't hear that when we hear the message of Jesus. We hear that, gosh, it's all good. God loves us. We get forgiveness, all these wonderful blessings. But we fail to tell you that, guess what? Your life may get harder when you become a Christian. Anybody had that experience? I mean, gosh, sometimes people come to Christ and life gets harder. Because all of a sudden they're dealing with stuff that God wants to, wants to deal with in their heart. And sometimes that involves pain and memories and healing to go through. That. All of a sudden, they're, they're aware of things that they weren't aware of before that's inside of their life. And their, maybe their selfishness or uh, things that they're doing in their marriage or with their kids. And all of a sudden, God's bringing this stuff up because he wants to heal them and transform them. And so he's willing to sacrifice this temporary thing for something bigger and eternal. And so Paul wants to remind us in chapter 6 that these new opportunities and blessings are not without challenges. And he's going to bring up one big challenge. The one big challenge is the devil. Anybody heard of the devil before? The devil, right? How many of you guys ever think about the devil? How, many, how much of your thoughts during the day in Orange County moves towards Satan, right? Uh, you know, I, I'm not someone that's thinking about him all the time. Sometimes I forget that he even exists because we have so much fun and pleasure and good stuff and we're running around doing all these things. We live in the best place in the world and all of a sudden, then I'm hit with the reality of life. Whether it's in my world or whether it's in the news world or whether it's with a neighbor and a friend, uh, somebody breaks their back on a boat like Angie, uh, a marriage blows apart, uh, a tragedy happens, and all of a sudden I'm brought back to reality. And that's the reality where we live. And Paul wants you to know in Ephesians chapter 6 that we live in a, a reality that is a huge spiritual conflict. We, live in a, we don't live in a Christian bubble. We live in a battlefield. And Paul is actually going to use military terms to describe the reality that we live in in Orange County today. In spite of the fact that everything's good, we have business opportunities, we have uh, opportunities for fun things and vacations and all this stuff, there is a diabolical strategy that's working in this system to destroy the purposes and plans of God for your life. And Paul does not want you to leave the book without being aware that we are in a spiritual battle and we're fighting a spiritual enemy that desires to destroy our calling, our purpose, and the great things that God wants us to live out in Orange County every day. And so Paul opens chapter 6. Hey, a final word for you guys. Put on your gear, man. <laughs> grab your helmet. Uh, get your pack. Grab your rifle, man. Gear up, because guess what? We're heading into battle. Paul says a final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Paul is saying... Spiritual life is not without great challenge. Spiritual life is not without great challenge. There is a pushback. We're not in a neutral safe zone. There is a spiritual enemy that has an agenda to take you out of your marriage, to take you out of your integrity in the workplace, to take you out of your witness and testimony for Christ, to take you out of your love for your neighbor, 
or your, your parenting legacy with your children. There is an enemy that wants to destroy God's plans and purposes for your life. Become aware of that enemy and gear up because God's given you everything that you need to be victorious, to be successful, to stand strong in that battle. We are born again with a new nature and a new purpose and a new family and a new eternity and a new power, but we are born into a battle, an epic struggle with eternal consequences, an epic struggle between good and evil, an epic struggle between life and death. Paul is saying we're, going, we're wrestling We're wrestling with an enemy. And the word that he's going to use in this passage for wrestle is hand-to-hand combat. (laughs) It's like, man, we're face-to-face with an enemy. And this is an all-out life-and-death conflict. And so take that soberly and seriously. But be of good cheer. Put your armor on because you have everything you need for success. The victory has been won. And we know that. We know that the spiritual D-Day for this battle happened on the cross. We know that when Jesus said it is finished, he destroyed the power of the devil who had the power of death in our lives. He destroyed his power. The power of sin and death was destroyed on the cross. And so the victory has been won, but the battle rages on, right? I love war movies. Saving Private Ryan is one of my favorite movies. I've watched it over and over again. And I love the story of these men and the D-Day invasion. And man, it's just this crazy thing that's hard to even grasp when you watch what these men went through. But once they got onto the beach, guess what? The, the, the battle did not stop, right? That was a decisive victory in the war. But they had to continue to battle until... The enemy was completely done. I think historically it took a year and a year and a half before World War II to end after D-Day. There were still battles to fight. And there was still a man to save. His name was Private Ryan. And and these guys are ordinary Joes. I love Tom Hanks. His hands are shaking when the the, the war's going, you know. His hands are shaking. And he he says, I'm just a teacher. Teacher from Kansas, man. But he's a sergeant now. And he's, he's got this troop of men. And his mission is a man. It's Private Ryan. And guess what? You've been born into a battle and God's put the armor on you. You have that. And he says, actualize that. Because guess what? Lives are at stake. Yes, you have been saved. Yes, you have an eternity. Yes, you have a new hope and a new purpose. But God has kept you on this planet. He's put you in your workplace. He's blessed you with neighbors and friends. He's given you a family system of relatives and Uncle Harry's and and Aunt Sally's. He's given you all this stuff so that you would stand there and represent God through the ups and downs of life. And when you stand strong, especially in the midst of a battle, when you're suffering or struggling with persecution or difficulty and people see your life, they see your hope, they see your peace, They see the the righteous way that you go through life. They see a difference. And you stand strong in that battle and you point people to God. We are here to stand firm in the battle. Wear the armor of God and point people 
to the reality of God. That's why God has you here in your workplace and your neighbor. Do you realize that's your purpose? It's way beyond just the earthly stuff that you encounter every day. There is an eternal purpose why God placed you in your neighborhood, in your community, with your friends and families. And so Paul says there's going to be a pushback because if the enemy cannot take away your salvation, if that's been won, he wants to destroy your witness so you cannot influence others for the kingdom of God. And so Paul says stand strong. Put on the armor of God. God has placed you not in a spiritual bubble. He's placed you in a battle with eternal consequences and purposes on the line. Paul says understand your enemy. Understand who you're facing. We're not fighting against flesh and blood, right? Your wife is not the enemy. Your husband is not ultimately the enemy. Your neighbor who is cranky, the one I have a cranky neighbor in the back, he's not ultimately the enemy, right? The terrorists that we read about, they're not ultimately the enemy. The Democrats, they're not ultimately the enemy. The Republicans, they are not ultimately the enemy, Right? They are not ultimately the enemy. Paul says we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, ultimately. But against evil rulers and authorities in an unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. What Paul is not saying is that evil does not take a flesh and blood form. Evil does take a flesh and blood form. Paul's been stoned. That wasn't an illusion. Those those rocks actually hurt. Paul's been flogged. Those stripes are actually on his back. Paul is imprisoned by a government that is persecuting him. His freedom of speech and proclaiming the gospel. These are real evils and, and oppressions that are coming against him. He's not saying that that stuff isn't real. He's just saying that there's so much more beyond, behind, and above and around that. When flesh and blood evil takes a form of structure, when, when supernatural evil takes a form of structure in a person's life, in a marriage, in a community, in a context, it is way more than the human and the natural realities. Paul is saying there's a reality that's behind that, that's beyond that, that's working through that to animate that, to aggravate that, and he calls that a spiritual battle. Paul says evil is way more than human and natural. It's way more than human and natural. It is supernatural, right? These are supernatural forces. It is sophisticated. They're organized. There's rulers. There are authorities. There seems to be an organization and a structure and an agenda. It is sophisticated. Highly sophisticated and intellectual. Beyond human ability to grasp and reason. It is pervasive. It pervades every area of society. The media, government, education, sports, wherever there are people gathering, there is a pervasiveness of evil trying to control, manipulate, and trying to steal, rob, and destroy. It is there. It is powerful. And it's personal. These are personal agents. These are personal beings that are out to attack and destroy the plan of God. We have a huge problem with this in America. We have a huge problem with this in Western culture. 
Bucky, you're going to tell me there's a guy with a pitchfork jumping around, the red guy that, out there trying to take me out? Come on, dude. I mean, we can fly airplanes. We can do heart surgeries. We know everything about the universe and the planet. You're going to tell me there's some guy in a pitchfork coming to take me out? Come on, get over it, man. Get out of the old world and into the new world. We're moderns, right? We have science. We have technology. We know reality. We have a huge problem with this in the West, and yet there are people that are secular, people that don't believe in God, people that are of... Uh, a natural persuasion and naturalists that are saying actually the view in America and the West that they have of evil is very deficient. Our Western view is deficient. It's not adequate to describe the reality of evil that we see on the news media every day. Andrew Dobanco, he's a liberal scholar. He's uh, at Columbia University. He's a historian and he wrote a book about 10 years ago called The Death of Satan about the cultural way that we look at evil. And he says, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil, because we see the heinousness of evil, we see people's heads being chopped off, we see mass murders, we see these terrible things happening, evil, and our intellectual ability to cope with it. We don't have the language, we don't have the images, we don't have the terminology even to describe evil in the world today. Because we've shrunk it down, we've made it so natural, we've made it so scientific, we can't even understand it anymore. Because our worldview is that everything has a natural cause, everything has a natural cause and a scientific explanation. So the reason that there's murder or mass murder, the reason there are wars ultimately the reason heinous acts of racism and hatred happen, the reason that there's so much people pull out guns and shoot people in crazy places is because they had bad parenting. They just weren't raised in a good family. They didn't have the right parents. It's, it's, it's the parents' fault. It's because they had a bad uh, a, a culture that was archaic and old and they didn't have the structures and they didn't have the, they didn't have the right education. If they've only had the right education if they only had good parenting and nutrition, if they ate the right kind of healthy meals, they wouldn't have killed 17 people. And that's what we're saying. Everything has a natural cause, sociological cause, a, a, a psychological cause. Everything has a natural cause. So we can study it, we can do it, and we can come up with a fix scientifically. And that's the definition of evil in the West. And here's this liberal scholar saying, guys, we've lost our ability to deal with it. We can't even name evil anymore. It's becoming harder and harder. This is from his premise in the book to say that the Holocaust, you know, the, the murdering of millions of Jews, ethnic cleansing, the killing fields, Kosovo, people's heads being chopped off on TV that we see now. Guys taking guns or, or people and just mass shooting people in, in place, public places. It's getting harder and harder to say that these things are just a result of bad psychology and poor social adjustment. Evil is way too big, way too pervasive, way too dark, way too big, and we have lost our ability really to deal with it. Never has evil been more apparent, and yet we have no words to describe it in our Western naturalistic scientific framework. And guess where we go to find out the true reality of evil? 
guess where we go to understand the complexity, the depth, the pervasiveness of evil? The Bible has no problem describing it and talking to you about that. As a matter of fact, I think the Bible's worldview matches the reality way more than what we're hearing from just a naturalistic scientific perspective. And that's why the Bible informs us on the reality of life. Where where does all this come from? Does evil just come from bad parenting, bad psychology, bad sociology, bad nutrition, bad economic? Is that really where it comes from originally? No, it doesn't come from that. It comes from an origin that is supernatural. It comes from the beginning of creation. Its roots are there. In the Bible, we have a description of the origin of evil. See, evil, according to the biblical worldview, is a cost. Evil is the cost of a free will creation. If God is love, if God is a father that loves us, if God is community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the essence of who he is is a loving relationship, he expressed his essence in creation that he created creatures that had free will decision-making. He didn't create you as robots. He didn't pre-wire everything so there's no free will. If he would have done that, there would have been no love by definition. Definition requires a free will choice, a free will offering. God wants your heart. And so the, the cost of that is that you could choose to reject his plan. You could walk away from that. And that produces the opposite of God, which is evil which is destruction, which is called sin. And so evil is the cost of a free will creation. And what we find out in the origins of mankind is that God created this beautiful creature. The most beautiful being he ever created was a part of his angelic host. Right? God didn't just create humans. He created angels. Angelic beings, the Bible is full of these beings that are there to serve. They're supernatural beings, they're eternal beings. They're there to serve the purposes and implement the plan of God. And in Ezekiel 28, we have this description of one of these original beings, the most beautiful being ever created, and his purposes before the throne of God. Ezekiel is giving a prophetic rendering against the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre is diabolical, he's evil, and he's being, being, he's being given uh, prophetic utterances against and judgment. And then all of a sudden the prophet steps behind this human personality and he describes a supernatural being that is behind all the destruction that's happening. And all of a sudden he begins to talk about this angel and he describes Lucifer. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone adorned you. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, an archangel, so, uh, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You were in the presence of the holy God. You walked among the fiery stones, the Shekinah glory. Evil came originally out of a creation that was good. Lucifer was created for good. He was the most beautiful being in God's creation. The most beautiful being ever created. He was uh, perfect wisdom and beauty. He was precious to God. He uses these 
imagery of stones, precious stones, diamonds and oinks and all these to describe his character and his beauty before the throne of God. And he was ordained, ordained to minister in the most honoring place at the throne of God. And this is this being of beauty that God created. And as it goes on, we see what happens. Where does evil come from? There was a fall before the fall. Before, the, before Genesis 3 happened, there was a fall in the heavenly realms before the fall of mankind. And here is the description of that fall. The character of Lucifer, this archangel, was corrupted. You were blameless in your ways, Ezekiel goes on. From the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you actually pervade this wickedness into others. You were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and made a spectacle of you before kings. Uh, the, the sin of Lucifer, who becomes Satan, the adversary of God, is pride. He, he took his, his gifts, the beauty, the wisdom, the understanding, and he rebelled against the rule and reign of God. His sin was a sin of pride. I'm better than God. I can rule better than God. I can take over. And so he enticed a rebellion. He marketed his trade of violence, and he, he deceived a third of the angelic homes, Host Lucifer was cast down on the earth because of this, and a third of the angelic host with him. He became the adversary and tempted mankind. These, this is the origin of evil. It began in the heavenly realms. It began as a spiritual attack, and that and it spilled off into the creation, and then we were captured by that same corruption. This is what the Bible talks about, where evil came from. It's supernatural. It's powerful. It's pervasive. It's way deeper than psychology and sociology. Those things can aggravate sin and brokenness and evil, but they can't create it. The origins are in the creation of humanity and and, and the supernatural uh, powers in the heavenly realms. Here's how Satan is described throughout all of Scripture, right? He leads rebellion with the angels. He is a part of the fall of mankind. He deceives Eve and then Adam with her. He opposes God's work continually. He deceives the nations and works through kings and structures to oppress people. He ensnares the wicked, you know, in addiction and anger and abuse. He ensnares them, alcoholism, all the things we see are this plan of Satan to entrap us in our sinful patterns. He hinders the gospel. He steals it from people's hearts. He walks around as a roaring lion seeking who he might devour He is the accuser of the brethren. He stands before the throne of God and accuses the saints and defames them. He had the power of death, but he was defeated at the cross. His time is limited, and he knows his time is limited. And so he's going down, and he's going to take as many people as he can with him to deceive, to destroy, to rob, and to steal. And that's why our part is so important. That's why it's so important for us to stand our ground we, we are God's ambassadors. We are God's emissaries. As we stand strong in the battle, we point people. You know, the armor of God is God's covering over us. It's God's hope. It's God's righteousness. It's God's peace. 
It's God's truth, the sort of truth. It's, it's, it's our faith. It's all these gifts that God has given us in the gospel. And when we stand in that gospel, we point people to the reality of God with our life and our words. And so Paul says, stand your ground. Therefore, put on the form of God. We're going to discuss more next week. It's going to be a two-part thing. Next week, I'm going to talk about the individual pieces and how they come into play. But what Paul says is that you can stand your ground against this this force that is powerful and pervasive. You don't have to live in fear. You could stand your ground and be victorious and make an eternal difference in the life of your family and the life of those around you. How do we do that? Just briefly, in the last five minutes here, the first thing we need to do is we need to stay balanced with our view of evil. Stay balanced. You know, when, when you're gonna when you're gonna play basketball, there's a position, there's a balanced position that you defend with, or that you're not. If you're gonna grapple somebody in wrestling, there's a there's a key balanced position. Nobody goes into a wrestling match with a leg up, I don't think. That's only karate kid that does that, right? No, no, there's a balanced position in football, right? There's a key position and there's a balanced position in war. And Paul says, if you're gonna stand strong, stay balanced. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the book Screw Tape Letters said there's two ways that we get out of balance when it comes to demons and evil. This is a great book to read. If you want to understand more about spiritual warfare, C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Litters, is a brilliant book that describes and helps us understand the concrete reality of spiritual warfare. And what Lewis says is the two biggest problems we have is we make too much of Satan or we make too little of him, right? We, we either give him too much power And we say there's a demon behind every bush, and we're shouting out warfare prayers everywhere we go. Satan's after me personally. He's behind this bush. We see our our teenager in the morning. We say, Satan, get behind me. Satan's everywhere. He's out to get us. He's behind every nook and cranny. We're fearful, and we're worried about him. We're throwing out these magical prayers to get rid of him. That's one extreme. That's a way out of balance. We give Satan too much. Or, like in the Western culture, we give him too little. That's a fairy tale. That's a fantasy. That's, those are old, archaic words. Come on, a guy in a pitchfork. All I need is a good psychologist and a good meal. I'll be just fine. Right? That's the other side. That's the natural side, the material. We either become a materialist or a magician. Right? Which side do you fall on? You know, I can go to Bible study and there's some people that come in and they're just throwing Satan out everywhere he's at to get him and throwing these incantations. And, you know, I look at the guy and I go, guess what? Your problem is you're overweight, you're a diabetic, your problem's physical. Your problem is that you have a terrible marriage and you don't know how to talk to your wife. You do need to go see a therapist. You're so out of balance, everything's about Satan and you won't take personal responsibility for the own sin and psychology in your life. You're so out of balance. Then there's these other people that come in and you know what, they've got their therapist and they keep going to their therapist and they never change. Nothing ever happens. They keep doing the same things, over, expecting different results. And they're really cut and they do all this stuff. And yet they're broken. And they're, they're, they've got these issues that only a spiritual prayers and knowing spiritual warfare and seeing the personal attack of Satan on their life will free them from that bondage. We have to have a balanced perspective. You know what? Depression. Depression sometimes is physical. It's brain chemistry. Depression sometimes is because you're not getting enough to eat. Depression sometimes is because you have bad psychology and you do have issues in your family of origin. Depression sometimes is a moral issue. You're holding unforgiveness against your wife or your neighbor and you're full of bitterness. 
And depression sometimes is a great spiritual issue because you've given Satan a foothold with that anger and you're allowing him to control your life with lies. It's much more complex. It's much more, you know, complex and we have to look at every aspect. The error is when we become too simplistic. We over-spiritualize or we under-spiritualize. Paul says be balanced. Be balanced. Look at the full aspect of what's happening and you'll be able to stand firm. The second thing he says is become aware of Satan's devices. What are the two key tactics that Satan wants to use in your life that are all through Scripture? From the beginning through. He hasn't changed his tactics because they work every time, right? His two main tactics are temptation, right? To tempt you to, to sin and to, real, to think that the thing that you're going to sin and the decision you're going to make is somehow better than the purpose and plan and God of your life. He wants to tempt you to, to take something and make it more than God is in your life. That's an idol. That's a thing that you'll, you'll, you'll replace God with. That's his temptation, right? Or he wants to accuse you. He wants to beat you up, make you feel worthless, so you're self-loathing, self-hating, so you'll take yourself out of the game. He uses those two main tactics in our lives. Temptation is to have too high a view of self. I deserve that. Look at, look at Genesis this week. How did Satan tempt Eve? God's not good. You need to eat that apple, right? You eat that apple, you become like God. Come on, he's holding You're better than that. Eat the apple and you'll become God. That's temptation to have a high view of yourself. I deserve this. I need this. I got to have this. That person has it. Why don't I get it, God? It's to have a high view of self and it hides the holiness of God. See, if you have a high view of yourself, I'm better than, I know better than God. This is the temptation of pride, the temptation of better than. And I can make a decision, and everything's going to work out okay. That's that apple. You bite the apple, and all of a sudden you realize, I bit into death because I didn't realize when I crossed the plan of God, the result is death. And see, I didn't see the holiness of God. I didn't see the consequences of my decision. That's the bait and switch of Genesis, right? Three. What about accusation? The book of Job. Satan goes before the throne of God and he accuses Job. This guy only loves you because you bless him. This guy's not a good man. You take away your blessings and he's going to curse you and walk away. Accusation, accusation, accusation. He is an accuser of the brethren. He wants you to buy the lie that you're not enough, you're unlovable, you're worthless. Because of your past sins, God can't forgive you. You'll never change. He wants to buy you to buy the less land, to have a low view of self. And when we have a low view of self, it hides God's grace and love from us. You see, those are the two out-of-balance ways he wants to attack you with temptation and accusation. How does he work in your life? He works with me with a lot of accusation, a lot of self-condemnation, a lot of self-loathing. And it's actually a false pride. Because I'm not willing to accept the grace of God in my life. I know better. I'm going to have to earn it. I'm going to have to beat myself up so I make myself acceptable. Both sides are pride. Both sides do not reveal and take a hold of the truth of the gospel, which really is the armor of God. And so Paul says you can stand firm against temptation, against accusation, by putting on the armor of God, which really is the gospel. It's by taking the gospel and preaching the gospel yourself, reminding yourself of the gospel, and standing in the gospel. And we're going to talk about the armor next week. But this week, your assignment is to, to talk to your spouse, 
to spend time journaling, thinking maybe a friend that knows you, how does Satan attack me? I mean, my wife totally knows how Satan attacks me. She totally knows how I go into depression. She totally knows that I go into darkness. I'll withdraw from her and withdraw from others because I'm feeling self-condemned. I'm not enough. And I'll pull away from her. I won't engage. And I'll go have my bitter pity party of one. And Kathleen totally knows the attack. And she helps me with the truth. How do I take those lies and replace it with the truth? Do you have someone in your life that you can talk to about this? Do you know Satan's attack on your life? Do you know where he wants to bring his devices to destroy you? Is it better than? Is it less than? Journal about that this week. Take those two categories. Temptation and act. Where does Satan tempt me to be better than? Where does he accuse me to be left than? Where is his attack in my life? Know the particular devices he uses on you. That's when you'll be ready to put on the armor in that area. Next week we're going to talk about how do I put on the armor in the area of attack where he's coming at me. This week, your assignment is, where does he attack me? Am I aware of his devices in my life? And the answer is the gospel. And we're going to end our time with communion. I'm going to invite the band to come up. But I just want to remind you that it's always the gospel that is the answer. The gospel is the armor of God. And every time we take communion, actually, we're reminding ourselves of the gospel. Every time we take communion and end with a service, we're preaching the gospel to ourselves again through the, br- b- the bread and the cup. We're reminding ourselves that Jesus gave his body and blood so that we might be saved. That's the seriousness of sin. That destroys temptation. You know what destroys temptation, men? Is before you click on the porn site, you realize when I click on this porn site... The woman that I'm watching, I'm looking at is in sexual slavery. The woman that I'm looking at is an- another man's daughter. The woman that I'm looking at is being abused, and this is a total sham. And I'm being trapped in an industry that destroys lives. If you put that in your man, get in your, into your mind, guess what? You're going to say, I'm not going to click on that site. That destroys the whole illusion and the fantasy of pornography. That's the gospel. Jesus had to die so you wouldn't go down the tubes through death on a porn site. Jesus had to go to the cross. He said, this is my body and blood. That keeps us from temptation to know the price that God paid and the cost of sin. Once we put the cost of sin out there, the temptation is not worth it. We just deny that and we buy the illusion, right? So every time we take the bread and cup, we remind ourselves of the seriousness of sin and what Jesus gave. It destroys temptation. But on the other side, we're reminded of the love. We're reminded of the fact that there is no accusation that can come against us because we're not condemned because Jesus paid the price because he loved us so much. And so when we take communion, we remind ourselves of how beloved we are. There's no self-condemnation. There's no accusation that can come against us because we are the beloved child of God. We are free in his love. So every time we take communion, we preach the gospel to ourselves. We put the armor on. We strengthen ourselves for the battle. We put on hope, the helmet of hope. We put on his righteousness through his body and blood. We stand in in the place of peace. Our feet are shod with the gospel because we have a relationship of peace with God. We have, the built, we have the sword of truth, the word of God that we're taking in. We're putting on the shield. See, we're putting on the armor as we take communion. 
We're reminding ourselves of the truths of the gospel. And that's how we stand strong every day, just to remind ourselves to stand in and to believe the gospel in our life. So let's bow our heads, prepare our hearts this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. It is true. It is active. It is living. And Lord, there is, there's a battle out there. And there are lives in this room that are being destroyed by addiction, by anger, by despair, by hopelessness, by purposelessness, doubt, uh, by disease and destruction, Lord God. And I pray, Lord, that you would destroy the lies, the accusations, Lord, the, the temptations, that you would take those away and replace those with the reality of the gospel here this morning. It is your body and blood, Lord, that you gave for us to cover us set us free that we could be your beloved children. There is no accusation, there is no temptation that can stand against the children of God. Thank you, Father, for that. We remind ourselves and we thank you for your body and blood. Heal us and fill us today in Jesus' name. Amen. To find out more about us, go online to watermarkoc.church.